Shalom and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. Today is a special high day because it's not only Shabbat, but today we celebrate Passover. So we hope you enjoy today. We celebrate with our King, our Creator, on this holy day. I am Boyce. And on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant. And as you know, we are into the Spring Feast, and we want you to join us tomorrow, April the 17th at 7 p.m. Join us as we kick off the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And join us on April the 23rd at 1 p.m. when we close the celebration of Feast of Unleavened Bread. We look forward to you joining us. If you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live, you can email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. So I'm going to turn it over to the pastor on this holy day. Pastor, what are we be giving us today on Passover? Uh, we, we want to uh, be able to honor Passover. Uh, it's interesting about Passover is the fact that Passover is a, is a day that is celebrated uh, generally in the home of those who celebrate it. And I guess when you go back down to ancient Egypt, uh, that's how they celebrated in, in their tents. Now we give discourses uh, on, on, on the Shabbat, but actually this is just a tradition that we have developed, but generally uh, they are preparing you know, to, to slay the lamb. Now, according to the uh, way that things are today, is that many people who celebrate uh, Passover, they may have uh, church services and different services like that. But originally, it was something they did in their tents. It was not necessarily Moses and Joshua and them speaking to the people, but they they prepared them for the Passover. So when the Passover came, they were ready at that particular time to slay the lamb in order to honor the scrolls that Moses had given to them about Passover. So we want to look at it from the standpoint that today at even is when Passover actually begins. Now, due to the fact that it starts on the evening of a Shabbat, then it makes a part of the Shabbat a high holy day. And it kind of makes Passover a holy day. But remember, Passover was not a holy day. Passover uh, led to a holy day because as soon as Passover, that, little, that, that evening when Passover came in, then when the next day came, it was the Feast of Matzah or the Feast of Passover. And when the Feast of Passover came in, then that was a holy day. But now this year, even though uh, when we start Passover, uh, it's holy not because Passover is holy, but because it came in on a holy day. But so since the day is holy, then we treat the Passover the same way. But other than that, if it had come through the week, then that would mean that when Passover, say, for instance, if it were on a Thursday, 
then uh, we wouldn't treat it as a holy day. But then the day after Passover, which would be a Friday, then Friday would be considered a holy day because that would be the first day of matzah. And then the last day of matzah would be holy. Now this year, even though we have uh, the Shabbat and the Passover together, at least the last portion of it is holy. Then when we come in on uh, Sunday at seven o'clock, by the time we get to seven o'clock, it would already have started the holy day as soon as Passover was over on, on Sabbath, which we call Saturday. And then next week, when we close out at one o'clock, uh, uh, Sabbath would be the the week of uh, Passover would be over uh, when sun sets. So that's where it is this year. But like I said, it was generally a, a feast that they kept at their homes. They didn't ever necessarily have a discourse or a sermon or anything, but they were just preparing to get ready to slay, to slay the animal in order to get the blood together to be able to put on their houses. And so what we want to look at here uh, today to kind of kick it off is what I've entitled the Passover preliminaries. We want to look at some of the preliminaries uh, that would prepare us for this particular day. And so this evening when we get into it, along with the knowledge that we've already had and the knowledge that we are share here today may better prepare us for this evening that as we go into Passover, then we are be prepared to go into the Feast of Passover, or which we call the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So just before we go into our lesson today, let us have a word of prayer. Our loving fathers, as we look at this time, we realize that you are the one who instituted this service of Passover. And as we prepare and look in your word, may it give us insight and understanding of how to carry it out. Even though our hearts are grieved, O Heavenly Father, because my spouse, O Heavenly Father, would be the first time that we are celebrating the Passover without her, and may she rest in peace. But we know that Yeshua, when he died on Passover, he covered her life in his blood, that we can look forward to the great resurrection so as we discuss things that is pertinent to the salvation, O Heavenly Father, that comes as a result of Passover, that all of us who engages in this study may realize, O Heavenly Father, the significance of it and to prepare for it in such a way that we can prepare ourselves that when Yeshua does come, that the blood and the body of Yeshua that represents Passover may be appropriately a applied within our lives, that when we look at the blood and that when we look at his body, that we can recognize, O oh, Heavenly Father, how the life of your son is assimilated within our lives to make us like he was. And as a result, when he does come, he could be able to see those of us who reflect his image, and he can say unto us, well done, enter thou into the joy of your Yahuwah, that we may be able to eternally be saved in your kingdom, all because we have accepted the Lamb, which is the Lamb of Elohim, that taketh away the sins of the world. In his name we do pray, and for his dear sake we ask all of these blessings. Amen. 
and Amin. Okay, what we want to do is look in the book of Matthew. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew chapter 26, we want to read the first five verses in Matthew chapter 25. I'm not 25, but chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. And here it says, in Matthew verse 1 of chapter 26, it says, And it came to pass when Yeshua had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consorted that they might take Yeshua by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. So here we see Yeshua is telling his disciples that there is two days, and after these two days, the Passover is coming. So what we want to discuss, as I've said earlier, the Passover preliminaries. Now, what we want to discuss in this discourse is some of the preliminary things which would take place prior to the Passover Eve when Yeshua would be slain as our sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. There are some provisions which set the stage for this crucifixion. And we would like to look at three such stages. Now, the first stage is found in Matthew uh, chapter 26, and we want to look at verse number 14. Uh, And we want to read a few verses uh, from verse 14. Here in Matthew 14, in Matthew 26, 14, that is, in Matthew chapter 26, and we want to consider verses 14 through 16. It says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they coveted it with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So now here we see Judas selling out Yeshua. So our first thing that we want to deal with in this particular uh, preliminaries, the Passover preliminaries, is the Passover price. So that's the first thing we want to deal with, the Passover price. Okay. Now, when we deal with the Passover price, what we see is that Judas had made a covenant with the chief priests that he would turn him over uh, to them. So he made a covenant price with them. So now let's look at Genesis, uh, not Genesis, but uh, Matthew 26. And this time we want to look at verse number 47 and following it. And here it says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, 
from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Yeshua and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Yeshua said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid their hands on Yeshua and took him. So what we see here, Judas had covenanted it with them to take Yeshua. So we want to look at the Passover price. When we speak in terms of the Passover price, it is in regards to the value of the sacrifice. One of the first questions we want to engage in at this juncture is, what gives something or somebody value? Let us somewhat define what value is. Now, one definition for value is, value is the quality that renders someone or somebody desirable. Another definition, value is the estimate, value is the estimated importance of something or somebody as compared with a monetary or a barter system. A third definition of value is, value is the worth of something or somebody as compared to what it can be exchanged for. Now, from these three definitions, we should be able to get a basic understanding of a commodity or of a commodity's worth. Consequently, when we talk about a value, we are also talking about how much we may perceive the worth of something to be. See, if we want to have a value of something, we have to perceive what do we think this thing is worth, okay? Now, let us look at Matthew 26 and verse number 15, and notice what it says. In verse number 15 of the 26th chapter of Matthew, it says, And said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted, and they, and, and they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, when Judas asked the question to the chief priest, he said, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? Now, it wasn't Judas who set the value of Yeshua, but rather the chief priests. They covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. So apparently, that was all they felt that he was worth. And that's what Judas accepted. Now, Judas let them set to price rather than he's than for him to set the price. We don't always sell things at the price they are worth. What Judas did was is what many of us do. We allow others to set a price upon something we truly value without any input as to what the real value is. 
if Judas could have understood that 30 pieces of silver may have been good for the moment, but not for the future. So often we make investments so cheap of that which is value that it satisfies at the moment, but in the future it has repercussions. He may have gratified his greed, but he couldn't satisfy his guilt. He got the silver, but he lost his savior. He got a small treasure, but he's trashed the truth. He counted the money, but he didn't count the cost. Judas got his desire, but he lost his deliverance. Instead of him experiencing a Passover, he experienced a pass out. Judas, like many of us, must understand that anything of value is what we give it, not what someone else gives to it. When we allow other people to set our values, we're allowing them to buy something of great price to us at a lower value than which it should have been sold. If the Messiah, if the Messiah, if the Messiah has no value to us, others may offer us their value. If Judas had valued his savior as he valued the silver, he no doubt could have been one of Yeshua's greatest apostles. He set a standard too low for a commodity so high. When it comes to Yeshua the Messiah, when it comes to Yeshua the Savior, there is no earthly price, there is no earthly price tag that can be put upon truth. When it comes to Yeshua's promise of eternal life, there isn't anything measurable to it in an earthly treasure. When we sell out our Savior for silver, it breaks up our souls and reduces our spirituality. And when Judas tried to return the silver, what we notice is that he was fulfilling the prophecy spoken of. Now, let us look at this prophecy because there are some discrepancies on the prophecy that Judas was fulfilling. Now, notice what it says in Matthew chapter 27. Yes, sir, to Matthew 27, and we want to look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Matthew 27, 9 and 10. Now, notice what it says here. In verse 9, it says of the 27th chapter of, uh, of, uh, of Matthew, it said, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel value, and gave them for the potter's field as Yehoah appointed me. Okay, now, even though the Bible here in Matthew said they were talking about a prophecy being fulfilled in Jeremiah, but apparently there were some discrepancies here because we don't find it in Jeremiah. Okay, we do not find anything about this prophecy in Jeremiah, but rather, when we study in the Sefer Bible, it, it tells us 
that this prophecy was taken from the book of Zechariah. So let us look to the book of Zechariah and see what Zechariah says. So in the book of Zechariah, there were two verses that pinpointed this verse in Matthew's chapter 27, verses 9 and 10. There were two verses. So let us look at Zechariah, and in Zechariah chapter 11, we want to look at verses 11 and 13. Okay. Well, actually, it's verses 12 and 13. Okay, Zechariah chapter 11, but verses 12 and 13. Notice what it says. And here in Zechariah it says, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver, and Yahweh said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was praised at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. So here we see that Judas, when he sold his master out, was actually fulfilling prophecy. Now, Elohim, who stands outside of time, can look into time and prophesy what will take place. Did Judas have to do this? No. Judas made his own choice, even though Elohim knew that he would make the choice, but he did not make him make the choice. So the choice that he made, he condemned his soul but by making the choice, he, he was able to enter into a prophecy that would save the, the souls of millions of people. He himself would be lost, but in being lost, he would cause us to be saved. That is wisdom beyond the mortal mind, how Elohim can use an event that a person can make a choice to sell out Yeshua, but in selling out Yeshua, at the same time, he would call salvations to millions. That's brilliance. How the mistake of one man can cause millions to be saved and the person can be lost. Apparently, Judas didn't know the value of his master, so he let someone else set the value. If we don't know the value of something, we can let it go at a price far below what it is worth. Okay, let us, let us go to the, uh, the, the book of Peter, the first book of Peter. Peter had written a book or an epistle, and we want to go to that epistle in the book of Peter. That's First Peter, that is. In First Peter, we want to look at chapter 1, and... In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we want to look at verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, notice what Peter says in his epistle. In verse 18, he says, For as much as ye know that we were not redeemed 
with with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of the Messiah as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So here we are looking at Peter is telling us that our redemption doesn't come through silver and gold from our, to redeem us from our vain conversation. Here, Peter tells us that we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. However, he goes on to point out to us that our purchase price was with the precious blood of the Messiah as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So as we ponder the price of our Savior, let us prepare for him. And our next stage is the Passover preparation. We want to look at the Passover preparation. So we looked at the Passover price. Now we want to look at the Passover preparation. Now we want to turn uh, back to Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew chapter 26, we want to consider verses 17 through 19, 17 to 19. Now, here it says in the 17th verse through 19 of the 26th chapter of Matthew. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Yeshua, saying unto him, Wherewith thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to serve. To him, the master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Yeshua had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. So our second point is dealing with the prepar- the Passover preparation. Now, when we consider the keeping of Passover, there is what we call a preparation time. This preparation time for Passover here spoken of in Matthew isn't being introduced as something new, but rather something that was historically done in getting ready for Passover. Now, here we read in Exodus. Let us go to the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the, ch- the 12th chapter. In Exodus chapter 12, we want to consider uh, a number of the passages here. Okay. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, we want to look at uh, verses 3 and 6. We want to start with verses 3 and 6. Okay. Now, here it reads in Exodus 12, 3 and 6. Notice what it says. It says in verse 3, Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to thee every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Okay. And in verse six, it says, and ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So if we were back in the days of old, 
that meant this evening of this Sabbath, we would be slaying the sacrifice. Okay. So in other words, uh, what we are seeing here is that Israel was to select a lamb on the 10th day. That's when they selected it. And to slay it on the evening of the 14th day. So when Yeshua was telling his disciples to go and prepare for the Passover, he was going back traditionally of the Passover down in Egypt is before they got ready to slay the lamb, they had to prepare. So his life that was getting ready to be slain, they had to prepare for that. Just like they prepared for the lamb down in Egypt. So this preparation time was to aid them in understanding of what was to be done for the day of Passover. So here in Exodus 12 are a listing of the chores they were to perform prior to the Passover event. So we're going to look at some of those things that they were to uh, prepare for uh, the Passover of the slaying of the lamb before uh, they took the lamb's life. So let us kind of concentrate here in Exodus chapter 12 and look at some of the things that transpired. So we want to look at the Passover preparation listing. Not only was the time period pointed out as to when they were to start their preparation, but also what they were to do during this time. So let us look at some of the things they were instructed to do and to make some application as to how they apply to us today. Okay, now when we look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 4, notice what it says. It said, if and if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. So in Exodus 12:4, they are to determine how much a household could eat. In other words, at Passover time, you got to sit down and calculate who's going to be at your table. Now, if you had a household of five and I had a household of 15 folk, then I had to have more lamb than you did. And if you only had maybe five folk, you might not need but one lamb. And so a person of 15 may lead maybe two or three lambs, okay? But what we're looking at is we need to know how many people are going to be at this this event. That's why a lot of times when we have Passover, we have to send out invitations as to how many in your family is coming. It's not something that we are doing at random. The Bible says that when you have a Passover, you determine how many people are going to be there, be there. So now if you have less people, you need less lambs. So you may be, go in with a person that may have uh, three or four lambs because he got 15, but that also be enough to feed you as well. So you know how many is going to be at the table and nobody is slighted. Okay, now let us read verse five. Verse five says, your lamb shall be without blemish, and a male of the first year, and ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goat. 
Now, in verse 5, we have to determine the quality of the sacrifice. Now, he said you could use a lamb or a goat. Now, whether you use a lamb or the goat, he said they have to be without blemish. Okay? And so you you can't, couldn't just get any lamb. You got to make sure that the lamb didn't have any blemish on it or any defect. And the same thing with the goat. So what? how does that apply to our lives today? So that means that when we do it for the Passover, that our lives have to be without blemish. Why? Because the Passover lamb represented Yeshua. He was without blemish. And when we enter into his life and he gives us his life for our life, then we can have a life at the quality of having it without blemish. What was another uh, thing that they needed to do in the Passover? Let us look at Exodus 12, 6. He said, and ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at evening. Okay. So now the Bible says in Exodus uh, 12, 6, they are to determine when the sacrifice was killed. You couldn't kill it at any time. It was a certain day. Now, why, why was it so important to kill it on a certain day? Because we understand that Elohim had set this day on the calendar of heaven that when Yeshua come to this world, that he would die on a certain time. So Passover was the time on the 14th that he would die. So they had to meet the calendar date that uh, Elohim had set. So when he set that day, then this is the day he expected them to, to him to be killed. Did he make them kill him? No. Did he make the chief and the high priest to put him to death? No. They made that choice. But when they made their choice, Elohim knew the time and the date that they would do it because he had it on his calendar in heaven even before they were born. He had it there because he could stand outside of time, and then standing outside of time, he sees all things that happen. This is what prophecy is. Prophecy is that Elohim stands outside of time, and he prophesies events in time because he knows the end from the beginning, and he knew that on the 14th day at even, Yeshua would expire on that cross, and he did not coerce anybody to do that. They did it on their own, and when he died, he, he was dying on the 14th of Aviv. So, verse 6 of Exodus 12 is telling us the time clock or the date in which he was dying. Now, Exodus 12, 7, notice what it says. It said, and they shall take of the blood and shall strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. So in other words, he is telling them in the houses that they had down in Goshen, uh, right next to Egypt, it was a place that Joseph had acquired for the Israelites to stay. And as they stayed there, pretty soon they changed pharaohs, and as pharaohs wanted to get rid of Elohim's people, so he had the ten plagues to come. And the last plagues that they uh, had, it was going to be the death angel passing over Egypt in order to destroy them. But he said, if you did not want to be destroyed, be you a stranger, be you an Israelite, or be you an Egyptian, you had to have the blood on the doorposts of your house of your house, no matter whose house it was. If you had the blood of the lamb or the goat on there, you were not slain. So they had to put the blood on the two doorposts of their houses or, and also on the lintel above the doorpost. 
which translates to us that when we celebrate the Passover, we have to ask Yeshua to apply his life blood to us. He had to put it in our hearts. He have to put it in our minds and he have to put it on our bodies. And when you talk about the doorposts of our hearts, in other words, we are looked upon as a house. Each of one of us are a house or a sanctuary. This is why the Bible says that we are the temple of Elohim. He wants his spirit to dwell within us. Elohim is a house. And when we talk about a house, we're not talking about just a building, but we are talking about a person. When we talk about the house of Elohim, we are talking about the place that we go to worship, but moreover, what we are talking about, the house of Elohim, that Elohim is a house. And, uh, and when we talk about a family, in the Bible, they call a family a house. So when Elohim is a house, who is a part of his house? Who is a part of his family? Because a family and a house mean one and the same in Hebrew. So therefore, if Elohim had a house, who was a part of his house? Well, Yeshua was his son. He was a part of Elohim's house. So when we accept the blood of Yeshua, we become a part of his house. Therefore, when the blood is applied to the house, it is applied to the doorposts of our hearts. And if the doorposts of our hearts have the life blood of Yeshua that is sacrificed for us, therefore, when the death angel would come over, he would be able to see that there was blood on that house. There was blood on that family. There was blood on that individual's heart. So therefore, he could pass over. So... Verse 7 of the 12th chapter of Exodus is telling us how the blood was to apply it. It was to be applied to the doorposts of our hearts. Okay, let us go further. Let us go to verses 8 and 9. In verses in 8 and 9 of Exodus 12, it says, And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. So here he is talking about the experience. He is talking about the experience. They were to determine how to eat the Passover. How were they to eat it? Well, the Bible tells us right here in verse number uh, eight. He tells them how they are to determine how to eat, uh, how to eat the Passover. Now, when we talk about eat the Passover, we're not talking about a day, but we're talking about the Passover lamb. He said they they, they were to eat, not. A, they were to eat the flesh in in the night. In that night, they were to eat it. Roast with fire. In other words, they had to roast it. They couldn't boil it or, uh, or bake it. They had to roast it with fire, which means that our Savior, that when he was being crucified, in a way he was being roasted because when they put him up there and he agonized in pain, in excruciating agony, he was being roasted. And here it says, and he should have, and, and, and you should have the unleavened bread. Now, the unleavened bread was bread without any yeast. In other words, they had to take all of the yeast and put it away, get rid of the yeast, because the yeast represented sin. And oftentimes when you put yeast in bread, bread rises, and God, Elohim is saying, Take the yeast out of it because what your sin has done, it has caused you to be puffed up and lifted up in yourself. And when you get lifted up, then you, like Judas, feel that you can do what you want to do. You can make 
front of the sacrifice, you can treat the sacrifice as you want because you have puffed it up with yourself. And this is what sin has caused. Sin like yeast causes us to be puffed up with self. And so we have to get that yeast out of the bread. And he says that when you eat the lamb and when you eat the bread, you should eat it with bitter herbs. Oftentimes when you have the Passover service, we eat it with bitter herbs. Why is that bitter herbs? It is because of the experience that we have. Between last year's Passover and now, there are some bitter experiences that we have had, and these bitter herbs reminds us of that. And when I can be reminded of my spouse, when I eat those bitter herbs, I can reminded of her life. It was a bitter experience. My children had a bitter experience. Her friends and neighbors had a bitter experience. So when I eat those bitter herbs for Passover, it reminds me of that bitter experience. And then it goes on verse number eight, number nine, it says, eat not of it raw. You couldn't eat the Passover raw because the Bible says they had to extract the blood and they had to cook the meat. And one of the part of cooking is to exterminate all of the necessary uh bacterials and the things about meat that could be contagious in a disease that when you cook the meat, then it destroys all of the bacteria and the salmonella and all of the other things that a meat can get by poisoning. He said, nor swollen at all with water. In other words, they couldn't boil it. They couldn't put it in water and boil it. Number one, that'll take too much time because Elohim wanted them to get out in a hurry and boiling water would take too long. He said, he reemphasized the same thing that he says uh, in verse eight. Notice verse eight says they had to roast it. Now he says in verse nine, but roast with fire. My savior would not be boiled. They would take him and they would continue to roast him and to beat him. And as he went through all of the excruciating pain that we read about in Isaiah 53 of him being our sin or our lamb slain, his head with his legs and with the potential, with the uh, pretendence, he said, in other words, you shall, uh, eat it with his head and with his legs and with his pertinence thereof. He's telling them how to eat it. They are to eat his head. In other words, we are to have the mind of Yeshua to be able to think like he thought. When they put their crown of thorns on his head, they were roasting him. And as a result of roasting him, that crown of thorns on his head. He was dying for our thoughts. We are the one that thought the evil thoughts. And so when we go to the cross, his mind is given for our mind. So when we eat of his head, we are taking on his mind. And he said, and his legs, his legs are the support of his body that carries him. And so when we go to the cross, we give him our legs and he give us his legs. Now, the legs that we have now supports us and those legs does not go anywhere other than where the Savior would go. There are many people who are calling themselves Christians on his sacred day, 
But during the week, they find their legs going places that they should not go. So when we eat of the legs, we are taking in the necessary nutrients that our legs will not only carry us, but they will carry us in the right places. And he says, and with the pertinence, the pertinence means the heart of something. So when we have the heart of Yeshua, when we go to the Christ, we give him our heart. He give us his pure heart. And with that pure heart, then out of the heart are the issues of life. He says, it's not what goes into a man that defile him, but the things that come out of a man's heart. So when we have the leaven out of the bread and when we begin to eat of the lamb, we take on the personalities of Yeshua, which means that our hearts are clean. We begin to think good thoughts, not evil thoughts. And therefore, the leaven has been removed from not just our houses and our surroundings, but the leaven has been removed from our hearts. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, I believe, 6, that take out the old leaven and give and, and give us the new leaven, which is Yeshua, the Messiah. But we have this new bread, this unleavened bread, that have the malice taken out of it, the, the false doctrine that is taken out of it. All of that's leaven. And so when we eat of the body of Yeshua, his head, his hands, and his perturance, then what we are experiencing is a new individual. Our thoughts are changed, our walk is changed, and our heart is changed. All right, what was that? What else was there uh, in, in there? Let's look at verse 10. And the Bible says, And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. In other words, in verse 10, they are determining the consumption and the remaining of the sacrifice. Okay? So Elohim is telling them how to consume it, but he's also telling them that if you don't consume it, what you are to do with it. So the remaining portions that they didn't use, he said, you ought to burn it with fire. So you're not to you're not, you're not to save it and to put it in a refrigerator. You're not to take it and put it away that when you get hungry, you can eat it. He said, no, if you didn't eat it on this particular night, it had to be burned with fire. So all of the unused portion had to be burned up because it could no longer be used for salvation because salvation was being had to them on the 14th. And when they ate it, they had to eat all of it. And the part that they didn't eat, they were to exterminate it. Just like when we have the communion service, even though the communion service is really the Passover service, that if we didn't drink the grape juice or eat the uh, wafer or the unleavened bread, they were to destroy it. They were not to eat it in a common way to let us know that if we are not atoned for sin, then sin is going to be destroyed with fire. So therefore we had to eat it at the time in which he had specified that we should eat it. And when we ate it, and if anything was left over, he was demonstrating to those who did not eat up the Passover that this unused portion would be destroyed just like they would be destroyed. Now notice what it also says in uh, Exodus 12, 12. It said, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite the firstborn in the land of Egypt 
both man and beast, and against all the Elohims of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahuwah. Okay, so what he is saying here in 12, he is determining what the outcome of the of their preparation would be. In other words, when you have done all that I said to prepare for the Passover, what are you preparing for? Well, what are you preparing for? He is telling you in verse 12 that he's going to destroy Egypt. So the whole purpose of uh, Passover is to prepare yourself that when this world is being overcome, that you won't be overcome with the world because you got the blood, you got the life of Yeshua in you, and every life that has the life of Yeshua within them and on the outside of them, then they would not be destroyed by the vengeance that Elohim is going to take upon this world. He said, I'm telling you to do all this preparation so when the destruction comes, I'm not going to destroy any life that has the life of my son in it. But you have to make sure that you have the life of your son in me. You have to have his blood. And when I see the blood on you, and when I see the blood on the animals and everything in your household, he said, I'm going to overpass you. But if you don't have the blood, the firstborn of everyone in every house will die. Even the beasts of the field that is the firstborn, I will kill because they do not have my blood. And so that was what the preparation of the Passover was for, is to get the blood of the lamb to be able to be slain so that they would not be slain. Okay, let us now turn to our last stage of the preliminaries of the Passover. We're going to deal with our last stage now. Okay, now the last stage we're going to deal with, it's also found here uh, in the 12th chapter and the 5th verse of Exodus. And then we have some other scriptures we want to share as well. Now here the Bible says, in Exodus 12, 5, it says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Now, we want to stop there. He said it should be without blemish. In other words, when Elohim is saying the lamb without, shall be without blemish, he said, I need a perfect lamb. He, can have, he cannot have a blemish. Now, let us turn to Leviticus. We're going to turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Now, here in Leviticus chapter 1, we want to look at verse 10, Leviticus 1.10. Now, notice what it says here in Leviticus 1.10. And the Bible says here in verse 10 of Leviticus 1, And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. So he re he's reiterating that whatever you bring to me, it, it, it shouldn't have any blemish in it. Okay. It shouldn't have any blemish. Now, let us turn to first first Peter. Uh, first Peter that we had read earlier, and we want to uh, revisit that text in first Peter, and we want to look at first Peter and in first Peter, we want to look at chapter one. First Peter chapter one. okay, and here we want to read uh, the, let me see, let me get First Peter. 
Okay, we got First Peter. Okay, now we want chapter one. Okay, First Peter chapter one, and at least let me see. Let's see, First Peter chapter one, and let me see. And we want verse number nineteen. That's what it was. First Peter number one, chapter one, and verse nineteen. Now notice what Peter says. Okay, like we looked at the Passover, and one of the things that we're going to need is a perfect sacrifice. He said, but with the, he says here, uh, well, let's back up a little bit. In verse 18, just the first part, it says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. And then he answers the question by what we were really redeemed by in, in verse 19, which says, but even though we were not saved by silver and gold, he said, but with the precious blood of the Messiah as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So he's telling us that Yeshua matches what the Old Testament was saying, that when the lamb comes, it would must be without blemish or spot. Which he is basically saying it had to be perfect. So that's what our third point is dealing with, the the Passover perfection. The Passover perfection is the life blood of Yeshua that once we apply it to ourselves and it is applied to our hearts, it makes us perfect. Okay, now let us turn to Ephesians. We want to turn to Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, we want to look at chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we want to look at verse 27, Ephesians 5, 27. Now notice what Ephesians 5, 27 says. He says that he might present, present it. Now, if you notice, the head of this chapter is dealing with his church. He's talking about his church, but he compares his church to a bride as when the bride and the bridegroom comes to get married. So in verse 27, it's that he might present it, his church, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So if we're going to be a blemished people, a blemished church, a blemished assembly, we have to have the pure blood of Yeshua, which comes from a lamb without blemish. And as a result, we can have what you call that spotless and perfect life. So what we do understand about the importance concerning the sacrificial lamb is that it had to be without blemish or spot. Why was a lamb needed that was without blemish or spot? When we consider a perfect lamb, it was because Elohim wanted a perfect lamb to represent a perfect life. At this part of our discourse, we want to look at the perfection of the lamb from two aspects, namely the external perfection and the internal perfection. So let us turn to Matthew chapter 23. We want to look at these two aspects of our lives being perfect. So that's Matthew 23, 
And we want to look at, uh, in the 23rd chapter, we want to look at uh, verse 25, Matthew 23, and we want to look at the first part of verse 25. Notice what it says, Yeshua talking. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup of the platter, now, notice what he says. He said, you may clean the outside. Now, now, they were good at cleaning up on the outside. Now, let us notice also what about the outside. In Matthew 23, now this time we're going to look at verse 28. Verse 28. Matthew 23, 28 says, Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within, ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So in other words, he's saying, outwardly, you appear all right. You know, we look at you on the outside, you look okay. So when you talk about the outside of an individual, what, what are we looking at? We are looking at a person's behavior. That's what we can see on the outside is a person's behavior. So he is saying to the uh, scribes and the Pharisees, externally, you look perfect. You look okay. And this is why Yeshua had to say to the scribes and to the Pharisees, he said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he said, you shall in no wise be saved. Why was this? Because on the outside, they look good. That's how they looked. He said, but your, in order to be what I want you to be, your righteousness have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what does it look like when our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? In other words, he is saying if it exceeds their righteousness, that means that not only are you clean externally, but you have to be clean internally. So now let us look at the internal perfection. Let us look at Matthew 23, and, and we want to look at verse 25, the lat latter part of it. Now, the latter part of verse 25 of Matthew 23, it says, it says, For ye make clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. In other words, he said on the inside of you, you're filthy. You're filthy on the inside. You look good on the outside. You look very pleasing. But in order to exceed your righteousness, you have to go on from the outside to the inside and clean yourself up. Now notice what it says in Matthew 23, starting with verse 26. In verse 26, it says, Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. In other words, he said, clean yourself up first on the inside. And then when you clean up on the outside, when your behavior is being looked at, then you know that behavior is coming from a clean character. Verse 27 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto the whitest sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of men's bones and of all uncleanness. A lot of people, they look good on the outside, but, but on the inside, it is nothing but filth an excrement, an abomination. It's, it's nothing. They are evil. Their intentions are 
for, not for good. They can tear you down on the inside, but on the outside, they can give you all of the accolations like uh, nobody can give them to you. They can appear so innocent and so sweet. But when, uh, when he looks on the inside, he finds that it's a contradiction on the inside. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So Elohim is saying, if you're going to get the redemption that you need to get, you need to get the blood of Yeshua. His behavior on the outside was not only perfect, but his life on the inside was perfect. And when you can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees by going on the inside and cleaning up to match your outside, then you have the perfection of Yeshua, and that is the blood applied to your life that is pure, that when the Passover lamb comes, he can overlook your house, your life, your family, because you now have the pure blood of Yeshua. So what was the primary purpose of the lamb sacrifice? From Scripture, we learn that when a person brought a sacrificial lamb to atone for one's transgression, the lamb had to be slain and his blood was to be gotten and sprinkled by the priests in the first apartment of the sanctuary tabernacle before the veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place of the second apartment. Moreover, in the courtyard of the sanctuary tabernacle, the blood of the lamb sacrifice were put on the horns of the brazen altar of burnt offering and sprinkled around and upon the altar. We can read about some of that in Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 8. What we can see is that the primary purpose of the lamb sacrifice was to acquire its blood. They had to have its blood. Let us now examine why it is that the blood is so important. Why was that blood so important? We will refer to this part of our discourse as the sacrificial blood, and we'll refer to this blood using the term hemothusia. Hemothusia, okay? Now, hemothusia is spelled H-E-M-O-T-H-U-S-I-A. Hemothusia. H-E-M-O-T-H-U-S-I-A. Hemothusia. Now, we want to talk about the hemothusia. This particular term, hemothusia, is made up of two Greek words, Respectively, hemo meaning blood, plus the word thusio meaning in Greek sacrifice. The two words together gives us the meaning, the blood of the sacrifice. It was a blood of the lamb sacrifice that brought about the atoning act of the repentant. It was only by the redeeming blood of the lamb that both forgiveness for past transgressions and justification be given to the transgressor. So hemothusia means the blood of the sacrifice. And we are told 
from Scripture that almost all things are by law purged by blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now, that's found in Hebrews. Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And here in Hebrews chapter 9, we want to look at verse 22, Hebrews 9, 22. And it says here, it says, Almost all things are by law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now, when we could have, there, there had to be some blood shed for there to be remission. This word remission comes from the Greek word aphesis. Aphesis is spelled in the English A-P-H-E-S-I-S, aphesis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S, aphesis. Aphesis is a word for remission. So when we deal with uh, remission, it carries the meaning of ascending away. Consequently, when we speak about transgressions and trespasses being sent away, we translate this to mean that our transgressions and trespasses are forgiven. So to be to have remission of sins means to have forgiveness of sins. So when we sin away sins and trans trespasses and transgressions, we are sending them away through a process we call forgiveness, which is the remission of sins. So what is it about the blood sacrifice that results in the forgiveness of one's sins? When our life of iniquity is exchanged for the life of the righteousness of the Lamb, the, the repentant is declared righteous as well. Because when we talk about the remission or the forgiveness of sins, what we are talking about is taking away our sins. So the blood, according to the Bible, is where the life is. Blood represents life, and life represents the type of lifestyle that we lead, live. If we live a righteous lifestyle, then our blood is righteous. If we live the corrupt lifestyle, then our blood is sinful. So when we as a repentant gets the blood of the lamb, then the blood of the lamb is given to us and we give him our sinful blood for his righteous blood. So the righteous lamb's blood is given to the repentant and the sinful life of the repentant is given to the lamb. In the exchange of the sinful life for the righteous life, atonement is made. The repentant is justified by the righteous, pure blood of the Lamb, and the Lamb slain not only took away sin, but it also took away the death penalty of the repentant, setting him free from sin and death. The Lamb has taken away the life of sin from the repentant along with the death sentence. And now the righteous lamb is become sin and dies as a result of taking on sins. When the innocent lamb dies for the guilty sinner, such an act as this is called justification. 
in the process of the lamb dying for the penalty of sin, which is death, then how is it just for a sinless lamb to die in the place of a guilty sinner? How could that be? If it is not just for a pure, innocent lamb to take the sins of an impure, guilty person and die, then is it just for an impure, unjust, righteous person to go free without the penalty of death and live? Both were not treated fairly. The sinner for not dying for his sins and the lamb for not living for his righteousness. By them exchanging their lives with one another, such as such a transgression, such a transaction as this, cancels the debt of sin. If the sinner, when he, if the sinner, when freed and the innocent went to death, such a transaction as this is being is bringing about salvation. When a sinner doesn't get what he deserves, which is death, this is mercy. And when a sinner gets what he doesn't deserve, which is life, this is grace. Aren't we thankful for the Passover? For it was the lamb that gave us mercy and grace. We deserve to die, but he didn't give it to us. That was mercy. We deserve to die, but he didn't give it to us. That's grace. So Passover is the time that we experience Elohim's mercy and his grace. Were not for his mercy and his grace, we would all die. This is one of the greatest days in the history of the church. This is one of the greatest days of the holidays of Elohim in the year that gives us his mercy and his grace. Eternal Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Yeshua's name, we do pray. Amen and amen. Amen. So if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. Again, that's scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And we will try to get to your questions on the air today. And with that, we will transfer into our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So in the theme of Passover, I want to talk about Passover. So I just want to read... Uh, verse, if you can read it with me, it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. And it reads, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are matzah, unleavened bread. For even Mashiach, our Pesach, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the matzah, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So during this time, we want to get rid of the old leaven within our souls so that we can be clean and pure and in sincerity and truth. 
So, Pastor, I want to ask you some questions in regarding mm-hmm. the Passover. Okay. What were the biblical events in Scripture that centered around Passover or Pesach? Uh, the biblical events? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, there were a number of, uh, of events uh, that transpired around Passover. Uh, and we can look at a few of them. Uh, time won't permit to look at uh, quite a few of them. It's quite a number, but we'll we'll deal with some. Uh, Let's consider some of these events, okay? Uh, Let's uh, turn, well, we can turn back to Exodus uh, 12 that that we had in our discourse. So here in Exodus 12, we talked about some of those things, but uh, let's see what's surrounded. Well, let's see the what are the events that surround Exodus 12? Okay. All right. Let us look at uh, Exodus chapter 11. These are some of the events that was taking place. Now, the reason why we want to be cognizant of these events, because what we notice is here in Exodus 11, it says, And Yah said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. In other words, uh, Elohim's people were down in slavery. Mm-hmm. And as they were down in slavery, then what was happening was that uh, this Pharaoh that knew not uh, Joseph, who had given his people when he was uh, one of the prime ministers over uh, Egypt, this particular land, but they got to the point that they wanted to disregard the Israelites and overwork them and to have them to uh, work under hard taskmasters. Mm-hmm. And so when they began to cry out, Elohim was able to use Moses to bring them out. And so in verse 1 of the 11th chapter of uh, Exodus, is showing one of the events was that he was getting ready to uh, put the last plague. Okay. And the last plague was the 10th plague. That was one event that was going on. The other event uh, that was going to take place was that he was going to deliver his people from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Joseph got them down there, but they couldn't, they couldn't get out because they was on the bondage. So it took them to be able to get him out. So they was going to be taken out. But by being taken out, they had to have the blood of the lamb. So when they... Uh, got the blood of the lamb, then when the death stroke was to come, they were to get out. And then when they got out, Elohim was going to lead them in another event to creating a whole new nation. He was going to create a whole new nation uh, to come out of Egypt. And this nation, he was going to lead them to go into the world and to teach salvation to all mankind. See, that was the purpose of Israel, to teach salvation to all mankind. If you Mm. notice when Abraham died, Abraham had a lot of people, the Hittites and many of the enemies of the Israelites to come to his funeral. Why? Because he was teaching them salvation. Matter of fact, many of his servants that Abraham had is because he picked up up along the way. And when they believed what he believed, he accepted them because he knew that he was to teach salvation. So Israel, one of the greatest events, he freed them to give the world salvation. So those are some of the events that would take place around Passover. So Israel was to show the world salvation. Yeah, just like when Yeshua when 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 Yeshua came to this world, mm-hmm. uh, 
his whole purpose was to go to the lost sheep of Israel, not to other nations, but to the lost sheep of Israel. And by going to them, he was going to teach them, and then they in turn would teach the world. This is why uh, in, in the Bible, when he was dealing with the Samaritan woman, uh, and she uh, was dealing with Yeshua, uh, Yeshua uh, told her, he said to her, he said, salvation is of the Jews. What did he mean by that? Uh-huh. In other words, what he was saying to her is that you're looking for salvation. He said, we know what we believe. But if you want salvation, you have to come to the Jews because we are the ones that he had deposited. We are the depositories of the oracles of Elohim. We have the covenant, and we are to give this covenant to the world. And when we give it to the world, uh, it's going to have to come through my people, but I have to redeem my lost people first. Mm-hmm. And then when I get them, then they will give it to the to the world. And so what he was telling the woman was, yes, we're going to try to save Israel, but Israel is going to save you. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so in, in in today's age, we have groups now who are uh, Hebrews who are trying to, I guess, enlighten a lot of the true Hebrews that they're Hebrew. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they are segregating other nationalities and races that are not of the Hebrew lineage, that are Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So in today's day, should our message not only just be to Hebrews who don't know that they're Hebrews as well as Gentiles, or should we be as Yahushua trying to enlighten our fellow Hebrew brethren? And then once they're converted, then to take the message to the Gentiles, or should we just be trying to hit everybody at this point? Uh, well, we have to consider the context in which he, which, which he gave it, uh, now, if we could turn to the book of Acts, mm-hmm. I think it would give us some, somewhat uh, of, a, of, of a context. Okay. If we turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, and uh, it gives us a little background uh, of, of how we should go about this, because this thing is not uh, w- w- with, without the way in which it, it is to be done. Because if you notice Yeshua on that, when he met the Syrophoenician woman, he told her the same thing. He said, we can't take our bread and cast it to dogs. He said, but we can. Uh, 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 the, but, the, but the woman replied to him and said, but you do give the crumbs, you know, to the puppies. Uh-huh. And so when Yeshua heard that, even though she was not a Israelite as such, uh, he said, because of your faith, you know, he went and healed her daughter. So, I mean, we can still be able to be a ministry to those who are not a, a, a Hebrew, but our task is still to go to the Hebrew brethren. Okay. And, and, and and we can certainly pick them up along the way as we go. But I want, well, I want you to uh, look at this, uh, uh, what, what Yeshua says in Acts chapter 1, and we want to look at verse, verse 8. Well, let me see. Well, we can back up to verse 7 to kind of get an uh, uh, idea of what is in. Mm-hmm. Here in Acts uh, 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 chapter 1, and verses 7 and 8, he said, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know 
the times and the seasons which the Father has put into his own power. In other words, uh, if you read the context, they're they asking him, you know, when are you coming? And when is you going? When are you going to set up your kingdom? And that's also discussed in Matthew's twenty-four as well, mm -hmm. uh, uh, when he was talking about the signs of his coming. But he said, "You're not to know when I'm going to come, and you're not to know when the kingdom is going to come." That's that's not your concern at this point. But he went on to tell him what their concern was. He says, he says, uh, in verse eight, "But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you." Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is where his people were. They, got, they had to start at their people. And then he says, once you have witnessed for me in Jerusalem, you have to go to Judea. Now, Judea was kind of like on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But they were still dealing a lot with his people. And then he said, you have to go to Samaria. So when he talked to the Samarian woman, he was preparing her that, you know, it's going to be a greater awakening than what you see here of us drinking water at the well. And then he went on further. He said, then when you have talked to Samaritan, you ought to go to the uttermost part of the earth. In other words, he said, you start with your people, but you're not going to end with them. You're going to be going to the uttermost parts of the world. And this is the protocol in which we have. Uh, we have to send missionaries all over the world because he said, my people are scattered all over the earth. Mm -hmm. And we have to show them that they have the knowledge. They have the DNA. They have come down from Elohim's people and so, therefore, when they learn this knowledge, then they have to teach it to their household, and their household they have to teach it to the world. Okay. Now, also another major event, what um, the, as far as the New Testament go, because Yahusha was uh, crucified around Passover, correct? He was crucified on Passover. On, on Passover. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just wondering, and I'm not talking about him being born when he came of Mary, but was Yahusha, if he's of the father and he, was he created or was he born of the father? Cause we know he, um, the mm -hmm. father created mm -hmm. angels, but mm -hmm. was his son created or was his son born or came from him? He was begotten, uh, you know, uh, he was begotten of the father. Okay. Uh, the word begotten means that he had to come from the father. Okay. This is why when he was on earth, he said, I come from my father and I go to my father. Uh, he was, he was, he was begotten of the father. He came forth from the father. Just like in Christianity, they teach that, uh, the father, the son and the Holy spirit are Trinity and, the father is old as the son, and the son is old as the father. Mm -hmm. But but that's incorrect. Yeah. They say, well, the, when he said that he was a son, they say he don't literally mean he was a son of Elohim. Mm -hmm. They say what he meant was that when he came to this earth, he took the form of a son. That's what that's what Christianity teach. Uh huh. But if they if they teach that he was not the son, but he only took the name of a son once he came here, then then the scriptures are not telling the truth. But the Bible says in John three sixteen, for Elohim so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Yeah. So if he didn't send his son from heaven, and he became a son, he was equal with the father in in age and everything in heaven. And then mm -hmm. when he got to the earth, all of a sudden he became his son. Well, Elohim, you're not telling us the truth. You say you're gonna send your son. So, yeah. who did who did you send if you didn't send your son? Mm -hmm. 
Mm. All right. So that's one fallacy that we have. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing we have to look at is that while Yeshua was here on earth, he constantly said he was a son of the father. Mm -hmm. Well, the father's kingdom is, is where? Where is his kingdom? Could you tell me? It's in heaven. Mm -hmm. So if he said he's a son of the father and he constantly said that while he was here on earth, then if we say he's not the son of the father in heaven, but he's a son of the father on the earth, then how can he say he's his son when his father was not on earth when he had him? Mm -hmm. So we have to look at that. That's another point. And now the third point that we want to look at, that if he was not the if he was not the son of Elohim, then where did he come from? Because the only way that you can have a son is to have a father. Mm -hmm. So that means if he didn't come from the father, then the father had no son. Mm -hmm. And that's crucial. If he didn't have a son, then we don't have redemption because Elohim can't die. But if he had a son, anything that comes from it can die, but he cannot die. So if he didn't have a son, then atonement is nil. Uh, we, we would all be lost because he couldn't die. Somebody had to die for us to pay the penalty to get grace and mercy. So we're saying that then if he's the, he's the son, so technically he would be the firstborn. Mm -hmm. He was the firstborn. The firstborn is the one that died and he took the place. See, mm -hmm. even in Egypt, if... If they had the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn wouldn't have died because Yeshua would have took the place of the firstborn. He said mm. the firstborn of every uh, child that comes out in Israel is is, is, is mine. Mm. And so if it's mine, you better give me back what's mine. This is why Samuel, he was the firstborn in, in his family, and he became a priest. He, mm -hmm. he had to be given back to the Elohim, but the rest of the children that Hannah had, they, they, they didn't have to be priests. He always claimed the firstborn. Mm. Wow. Because that just came to me, you know, like I was just thinking like, wow, with the significance of the firstborn, mm -hmm. you know, how he took the firstborn when he was about to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then mm -hmm. he sent his son, which was the firstborn, to die for the sins of the whole world. Mm -hmm. You know, that right. is amazing. Yeah, well, see, it's a lot, a lot to the firstborn. You, you follow, uh, mm -hmm. just like uh, when uh, when when you deal with uh, the firstborn when it comes to the uh, uh, Elohim's people. Mm -hmm. Just like who are his people? His people are Israel, but before they were Israel, they were Jacob. See, his name was Jacob before it was Israel. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you look at it, is Jacob was the uh, Jacob, Jacob was the, uh, actually the second born, but he was, he and Esau, they were twins and he came out, he came out second. So when you deal with the first, the first born, a lot of his first born, uh, they, they, they went astray. Mm -hmm. Just like you take the first born of, uh, Adam and Eve was Cain. He went astray. Mm -hmm. You see? And when you take the first born of, uh, uh, Abraham, uh, you had, uh, his firstborn was, uh, Isaac. And then Isaac had his firstborn was, uh, was, uh, Esau and Jacob and Esau went astray. Mm -hmm. So when we deal with, uh, uh, the firstborn, a lot of times the firstborn may have gone astray, but 
then sometimes the firstborn turned out to be the one that continued, you know, the spiritual line, just like when you take uh, Joseph, he was the firstborn of Rachel. And because he was the firstborn, he was blessed tremendously, and he carried on, you know, in areas that uh, Elohim's people were being able to be saved out in Egypt. And he told them, when you leave this place, you take my bones with with, with you, because I don't want to be left down here. But what he was saying was basically is he still wanted to, even in death, he still wanted to be part of the people of Elohim, and he was the one to have saved Elohim people during the time of the famine. Mm -hmm. So the firstborn can have positive benefits and sometimes they can have negative benefits. Um, Also, when it comes to Pesach or Passover, do we know that if there's going to be, especially in these last days, another event, major event that may be centered around Passover? Yeah, I, I think we we uh, we have not only, I think, a future consequences of, of Passover, just like I was reading earlier about uh, some of the events of Passover was and down in Egypt, they had what? They had 10 plagues, and uh-huh. there was a death decree on the last plague. Uh-huh. So when we go to the book of Revelation, we also have the plagues to parallel with uh, the Exodus plagues. Uh-huh. They had 10, but in Revelation, it's going to be seven last plagues. Uh-huh. Okay, now, for the plagues not to touch Elohim's people, the 144,000 and the number that no man can number, uh, they would have to have the blood of Yeshua. In other words, they would have to have their life of his in them, uh-huh. externally and internally. And if they got that, when the plagues does come, it's not going to touch Elohim's people. It's going to touch the other people who have not accepted him. So when would this be? Uh-huh. Well, Elohim, at this time, we are trying to give the covenant to the entire world that Elohim is gathering his, his people. And as he gathers his people, it's going to come a time that as he gathered them, that they're going to follow his, his Torah. And when they follow his Torah, they're going to do what he says. And whenever we do what he says and be what he wants us to be, we don't have to worry about fighting. He's going to fight for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of our Hebrews are still being under police brutality. They are being shot down, killed. Okay. And just another incident happened the other day. Okay. So what we are saying is uh, for this not to be happening to our people, we have to come to the covenant. Does that mean that none of us will again get shot down? No. Some of us, just like in the book of Acts, in the 12th chapter when they had Passover, James was killed, but Peter was saved. Some of us still get killed. But 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 when we come back to his covenant promises of both doing and being what he wants to be, he said, you don't have to fight. I'm going to fight for you. Yeah. Because many of the plagues, that he, uh, Israel didn't bring those plagues. He brought them, and he uses those plagues in order to protect us. So Passover is a time of protection. He protects us and our property. We can leave home, and he will protect our homes. And so... In the last Passover, I believe, we are going to be together, united in House of Judah and the House of Israel are going to come back together again because it was split under Rehoboam after Solomon died. It was split, but he's going to bring the House of Israel and the House of Judah back together. And when he does that, he's going to protect his people who are following his covenant promises and being what he wants them to be. He's going to fight for them. And as he fights for them, 
then our enemy will be overcome by them. But as we have been talking about having the uh, mark of the beast or the seal of Elohim, and if we have that seal, then we'll be his. He would fight for us. We don't have to worry about getting the latest weapons of technology and stuff. He will be our latest weapons of technology and show us what to use in order to be able to demonstrate it. So it is up to us to come back to the covenant inside teaching it to the world. And as we do that, the last Passover is help, help us to overcome this world. Yeah, Cause you know, I, I kind of believe when I'm still studying on it, that there may be a second Exodus uh, mm-hmm. when Yah gather his children from the four corners. And I think that's one of the reasons too, you know, some people have said that they think they feel America doesn't want to let us go because <laughs> there's protection with us uh-huh. being here. And once that protection, once he gathers his chosen back, you, there's no more protection. It's going to be um, havoc. You know, uh-huh. he's going to be able to let loose on the people that doesn't follow him. Who's not keeping his covenant, you uh-huh. all, and get revenge on those who have persecuted his people. From all these generations, just like how you spoke of a guy just got gunned down just recently and all. Those things would not be able to happen once he gathered his chosen. Well, like I said, they still might happen, but we mm-hmm. we have to look at it from the standpoint. Some people will die for the cause of Elohim. Yeah. You know, we, we don't want, want to erase that. Mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't want to give a blind faith that everybody's going to make it. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that when the... Uh, 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 the Rav, Michel, and, and Abednego, you know, when they was in the fiery furnace and when Daniel was in the lion's den, they could have they could have been taken, mm-hmm. but Elohim chose to save them. And many of our people are going to be saved during these atrocities that are going on. Yeah. And some of them, they, they would give their lives. So we don't want to set up a straw man because even, uh, even the three Hebrews, when they went into the fiery furnace, they said, if Elohim deliver us, fine, you know, Mm-hmm. But if he don't deliver us, we're going to still serve him. We're going to still serve him. So what we're looking at is we still have to have faith in him. He will fight for us, but that doesn't mean that some of us, our lives will not be taken. But if he does gather us and put him, put us back into the land that was given to our forefathers, Abraham and Yaakov, um, would we still be taken out if he's in this land with his protection? If, if well, that was like, to happen. Well, I don't know. I, we would have to cross that bridge when they get there. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just saying I have seen uh, that when even when people do right, mm-hmm. that sometimes their lives may be taken. We, we, we don't know the reason. I, at least I don't know. I don't claim to know every life that has been taken and why it's been taken. But when we consider the land, you know, I think many of us, when we talk about the land of Abraham and Isaac and all of this, we're looking at Jerusalem, but the land that he promised to give them was the land of the Canaanites. It was not necessary just as Jerusalem. And so when we look at that, we have to say to ourselves, will he protect us in the land? Sure, I'm pretty sure he will. He will not only protect us in the land, mm-hmm. but he will give us prosperity from the land as well if we follow the agricultural laws. But what I'm saying here is that in the last days when everything is going down, and we may have a second exodus. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we may have a second and a third. I don't know that. Mm-hmm. But we know we are promised to have somewhat of an exodus in heaven. But the fact is, is that 
uh, when we start the Exodus, one of the things that might happen that happened when he redeemed his people uh, in in the original Exodus, mm-hmm. they they went astray from him, and when they started going astray because they felt they had it made and everything was good, some of the people they started rebelling against him. Yeah, and all and he allowed his enemies to overcome them. And some of them were slain when they had become overcome. But then when they repented and came back, then he could give his protection again. So this is why I'm saying, uh, I don't know, you might be in the land, but this does not mean that everybody in the land is going to do right. Yeah. Now, I know uh, the lamb has a significant part to pay in Passover and the partaking of the lamb. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, how do you approach that with the lamb being such a part? Because I've heard somebody say that if you don't partake of the lamb, Passover in, in, in many instances, you keeping it if you're vegan or vegetarian is pointless. You know, I want to answer you, but I'm, I, I, I thought about presenting what you were asking mm-hmm. uh, at this Passover. But it's a lot of polemics in there that I have to deal with ensure that you really don't have to have a lamb for the Passover. Mm-hmm. And let me hold on, let, hold on to your question. Okay. But I'm doing a paper on that mm-hmm. to show from Scripture that a a, a a lamb. I'm not really trying to dispute whether to eat or not to eat a lamb. But okay. the paper is showing that we do not have to have a lamb uh, at Passover literally to eat in order to say we had a Passover. Okay. There are some camps of Israelites who say that. Mm-hmm. But from my research in the scriptures, uh, that is not so. Okay. Yeah, but I am doing something on that. And once I can get it in perspective, I can share the research with you. And then you can make your decision, you know, from that or review it and see what you think about the polemics that will be presented. Okay, maybe that's something Um, when you're done, uh, maybe you can give it to us and maybe we can post it on the website there where people can read it also you know okay well when we get to that juncture we we'll see and okay. uh, i'll see how much time and energy you know i put into it because it, it it may it may be given for you know just a, a small contribution okay but we, we we can we can do that okay. you know it, it won't it, it won't be it won't be so much that it'll break anybody okay but 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 it just be a small contribution and then we can we can send that out to you. All right. Mm-hmm. And we got an email, and it's a question regarding feast. And it says, the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD took place during a biblical feast that Jews from all over the area were attending. The Christians were not the, the Christians were not attending the feast. The Christians escaped Jerusalem at this time and not one Christian was killed. Christians use this as a reason for not keeping the appointed feast because they say they were nailed to the cross. And because they were nailed to the cross, no Christians were celebrating the feast with the Jews and the Christians were not killed. Is there any validity to this reasoning? Uh, they, 
Uh, uh, well, I, I'll tell you what, let me, let me answer this one. Let, let's go to the scriptures and answer your question. Let us go to Acts chapter, I believe it's chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. You won't know if there any some validity to that. I, I think there is, but the validity of it, I don't think uh, the validity does away with keeping of the feast days, but there is some validity, and let, let's look at that, and then we can take it further, because a lot of times when people make statements, now, what you're referring to, now, I haven't read, I'm just going on what has been presented, okay, let me see, let me get to the book of Acts, let us turn to Acts chapter 19, okay, Acts chapter 19, okay, Okay, uh, Okay. let us turn to Acts chapter 19, and we want to look at the uh, first two verses, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. We want to look at that and see can we get at the heart of your question. Here it says in 19, starting with verse 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye re believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto him, John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying upon, saying unto the people that ye should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on the Messiah, Yeshua. So in other words, what he is pointing out here, he's asking these people at Ephesus Church, he said, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, they were puzzled. <laughs> they said, we don't even know what, what no receiving of the Holy Spirit mean? We don't we don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. And so Paul turned around and asked another question. He said, well, where were you baptized? They said, we was baptized unto John's baptism. So he went on to explain John was baptized for repentance. You just repent. That's what the water was for. Just like he told Nicodemus, you got to be born of the water and the Spirit. So in other words, when you're water baptized, then you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus. So Paul is saying the same thing here. To the Ephesians, he is saying that once you were baptized, then your next baptism was to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is why Yeshua was saying in the first chapter of the book of Acts, wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You got to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we're all beyond uh, uh, Israelite or anybody who thinks that they can just be baptized and don't have the Holy Ghost. You're in a sad condition. Now, why were they in that position? Okay, here's why they were in that position. Because the Bible says here in uh, Acts 19, verse 1, it is said, and it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth. See, Apollos, Apollos was at Corinth, okay? Okay, now, when when Paul was talking to these people, uh, he was showing them that you need to baptize in not only of the water of repentance, but also baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what was going on. When we turn to Acts 18, it gives us a background of 
Acts 19. Now notice what it says uh, uh, here in, 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 in Acts. In, in, in Acts uh, 18, we're going to read a few verses. Now here, here it says uh, in Acts 18, and let us look at, uh, let me see, it's a few verses I want to articulate here. All right, right here. Uh, let me see. Uh, all right, let us let us look at uh, let us look at verse nineteen, Acts eighteen nineteen. The Bible says, "Let me see. Let me see." Uh, okay, well, let's start at verse eighteen. That that might give a, a, a better background. It said, and Paul, after this tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorned his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep the feast. Okay, now way up until this time, after long after the cross, he said, he was still keeping the feast. He said, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will, and he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in, in Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch, okay? Now, when he went down to Antioch, and then we go down here, uh, as Paul was going around, preaching to different places, notice what happened in verse 24. Now, this is what we want to focus on. He said, and a certain Jew name, now he was a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. Okay, he came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the very way of Yehoah, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of Yahuwah, knowing only the baptism of John. The reason why the Ephesus only knew the baptism of John, because Apollos preached there, and that's all he preached. That's why they only knew it. Okay, so if that's, only pre that's the only thing they knew. And so when Paul came and asked, when he eventually got to Ephesus church, did you receive the Holy Ghost? They said, no, we haven't heard of it. Why didn't you hear of it? Because Apollos didn't preach it. Now, we must understand that Paulus, Apollos was a, a, a powerful Jewish preacher. He could preach better than Paul. Paul could write better than Apollos, but Apollos can out-preach Paul. This is why even Paul in his letter says, you may preach, you know, you may teach like I can teach, but you can't preach like Apollos because Apollos was, he was an orator. He was a great preacher. But he, Paulus himself did not know about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so he couldn't preach it. But notice what it says here. Notice what it goes on to say. He said, this man was instructed in the way, well, well, let me see. He said, this man was instructed in the way of Yah, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and he taught diligently the things of Yah, knowing only the baptism of John. And 
he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto him, unto them, and expounded unto him the way of Elohim more perfectly. In other words, they taught Apollos, who was a great preacher. But what you notice about Apollos, not only was he a great preacher, but the man had humility. Aquila and Priscilla heard what he was preaching. They took the brother aside. They said, we need to teach you something, Apollos. What did they teach him? They taught him about there was a baptism beyond water baptism, which was the Holy Ghost. Okay? Because when Paul found out that they hadn't received it, then he taught them about the Holy Ghost, and they eventually received it, but not under Apollos. So uh, when he left, when Paul left Aquila and Priscilla behind, then the husband and the wife taught Apollos the truth about the matter. And he goes on to say, they took him aside and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into our chair, the brethren wrote extorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped him much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews and publicly showing by the scriptures that Yeshua was the Christ. He was the anointed one. So they had to te teach him. So now your question is, uh, is that, uh, was, was they justifiable in a sense of not keeping the feast days? Well, if somebody had taught them, <laughs> if they had taught them wrong doctrine like Apollos, and you believed it, and he, and, and, and the person you believe looked honest, and you believe honestly, you, you could have thought that the feast ways were done away with. Look at me. For many years, I, I preached that they were done away with, because that's how I've been taught. I was taught that in the schools, I was taught that in, in the college, and I was taught it at the university, that it was a ceremonial law. I taught it. But when people taught me a better way, then I saw it, and when I saw it, then I began to keep it. So my ignorance did not change the keeping of his feast days, but it did change my behavior when I learned the truth about it, that I began to keep them. So, yes, it, it could have been that that's why they didn't keep them. But if they would have stirred it further, and they should still have stirred it further, they would have saw that the feast days were not done away with. Mm. Wow. So the feast were never done away with. And just like you said, uh, you know, maybe these Christians at the time, they didn't know it wasn't being preached it, preached about it. But if we were to study more deeply and more in depth, we will find out that they were never done away with. Mm -mm. And I think one of the keys too. Uh, is when I can't remember the scripture, but when he said, this is a sign that you keep forever when in regards to the feast, mm -hmm. never, you know, forever never stops. Yes. Well, and that's it's correct. And not only, and not only does it never, never stop, uh, but the feast, just like the, uh, the seventh day Sabbath, the Sabbath day Sabbath is just the beginning of the feast. And when you keep the annual feast, that's the completion of keeping the feast. So, when you say forever, the Bible says in Isaiah 66, 
that from one new moon and from one Sabbath to another, you're going to continue to keep it perpetually. So the feast days are the same way. You're going to keep it perpetually. Because I asked the question, uh, <clears throat> when you deal with the sanctuary, you're also dealing with the feast. Because the feast is the one that set the calendar for mm. the sanctuary service. Okay. So if the sanctuary had meaning, he had to look at the calendar to find out when were the feast days because they call it the the tabernacle of the congregation. But if you look at the word uh, congregation, according to the Hebrew, mm-hmm. it meant it was the tabernacle of the Moeds or the Moedims. So okay. when you talk about the tabernacle of the Moedims, you're talking about the people. You're also talking about the calendar when they do certain things. So if they extracted the calendar from the sanctuary, they would not know when certain days, like the Day of Atonement and all that, would come around. So what you're looking at is, is that when you say perpetually, then what was the sanctuary before sin? What was the sanctuary used for in heaven? Well, if you go to the book of Revelation, you find one of the things that was happening in the sanctuary before sin came into the universe is that the angels and the four living creatures and all of those in heaven, they was giving praise and honor to Elohim. Mm. So when the feast days came down, it was days to give him praise and honor and glory. But when sin came in, then it changed the purpose of the sanctuary, not totally. They still give him praise and honor and hallelujahs, but they also had to now deal with sin. So once sin has been dealt with through the blood of Yeshua, and once we are redeemed and the world may do, we still going to have Passover because remember when Yeshua was here on earth, he said, I won't eat this Passover with you until it's new in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So he's telling you right there, if I'm going to eat mm. it with you new in the kingdom, I'm talking about the Passover. I ain't talking about nothing else. I'm talking about the Passover. I'm going to eat with you new in the kingdom. But when sin has been taken away from it, then the sanctuary and the feast day is going to go back to the original purpose in which they were meant. What were they meant for? To give honor and praise and glory to our creator. Wow. So if we don't keep them, we are not giving him honor and praise and glory. No, because like what to. are you giving him honor and praise for? Because of his grace. You des- we deserve to die. His son came and take our, our place. That's mercy. We deserve to die. We don't deserve to live, but he's going to give us life anyway. That's grace. Mm. He gave us mercy and grace at the cross on the 14th of, of B, which was the Passover. And and when we start giving them praise and glory, we're saying, Lord, we know we shouldn't be here. We had no, we we really didn't have a seat in heaven, but you died to give us a throne in heaven. We're gonna praise you throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity for giving us a life to measure with eternity. We're just gonna praise him. We got something to praise him for. That's what the feast days are for, to give him praise. Wow. So I think with that, we can get ready to close this one Passover out. So, Pastor, can you give us a word of prayer on this mm-hmm. Passover and Holy Shabbat? Okay. Well, Father, we just briefly looked at the Passover preliminaries and some of the things that we can do to prepare for Passover. And one of the greatest things we can do is to try to get rid of sin in our lives, which we cannot do. But when we apply and accept the blood of Yeshua, we can receive of his blood to purify our life because the blood symbolizes life. And when we take the life blood of Yeshua, we take his life and he takes our old life to give us life anew. So as we get ready for the Passover this evening, help us to just to search our hearts 
because this is a day that the family just get together. And when we get together, we just look over our lives. And even if we do not have a family to keep the Passover, we can look personally at our lives and say, Elohim, what is it pointed out through the power of the Holy Spirit, what I need to do, that when I assess the life of Yeshua to my life, it is the blood that was cleansed me to help me to go through the rest of this year to be able to reach out to the necessary sacrifice to cleanse my life that I might be in harmony with your wishes. So bless us to this end. And as we look forward to tomorrow at 7 o'clock, oh, Heavenly Father, that we can continue as we go on the Feast of Matzah, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that we can further explore in your word the things that it can prepare us for. It's my prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, I do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. We want to encourage you to come and worship with us tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. in celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread tomorrow, April the 17th at 7 p.m. So we thank you for tuning in today and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Pesach, Passover, unto Yahuwah Elohim, as it is written in the Sefer of this covenant. 2 Kings 23.21 Shalom.